Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. In Luke chapter 18, if you'll turn with me there. If I, Jesus, we need you. Lord, I need your help this morning. Lord, I'm asking that you would come and breathe upon your word by your Holy Spirit, Lord. I'm asking that it would cut us to the core, Lord, and that you'd be glorified as a result. Lord, we're not interested in just hearing words or man's philosophy. Lord, we believe this is the living word of God, and we're asking that it would change us. So uh, even now, Lord, I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you'd soften our hearts, prepare us to receive your word, and Lord, that Jesus at the end of the day would be glorified magnificently as a result. And so, Lord, we say thank you, and it's with expectation and invitation that we ask you to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody here like meatloaf at all? Like, you like? Oh, no, I, I wasn't talking about, like, the food. I'm talking about, like, the guy from the 80s. The, like, uh, I'll do anything for love guy, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to, no, seriously. I'm going to spare you my karaoke impression, but I, 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 I'm serious. Everybody's losing it right now, but I'm serious. Tyler, do you know that song? Can you, can you play it real quick? For worship. Seriously. Yo, I'm, I'm being 100% serious right now because I feel like that would make a great modern worship song for the majority of the church, right? I could do, I would do anything for love. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. I think that really sums up the American gospel pretty well, right? I'll do anything for Jesus, just don't touch this area of my life. Like, it, we're, we're really showy about it. Like, we're, we, we really want to feel like we're doing anything. We really want to say, God, that you have our all, but you really don't. <laughs> I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. You see, 2020, I believe, God has prophetically spoken to us as a church to be a year of encounter that it was going to be marked by the presence of the Lord. It was going to be marked by people meeting Jesus for the first time. It was going to be marked by us having recurring gatherings, meeting with the presence of the Lord, and God was going to move in a powerful way. You see, I believe that it's going to be a year for men and women to come into contact with Jesus, that our role as Open Door Church um, and as the Bride of Christ, as ministers of the gospel, is going to be to help facilitate that introduction for a lot of people. We're going to host the presence of God well this year. And you see, uh, I, believe this, I believe this kind of all plays into something. I believe that there is a role in the church today where we are willing to do a lot for Jesus, but there's still reservation in our heart in terms of what he's specifically asking us to do. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. 
And so as I'm talking uh, about the, the role of Open Door Church and hosting God well, and, and serving as a facilitator to introduce people to Christ, to I don't know who that is, to serve as, a, as a, um, a facilitator in introducing people to Christ and hosting that encounter and hosting that meeting. I, I want to say something to you, and I believe it might be freeing for a lot of you. You see, your, res- your responsibility is not to convert people. You need to know this. Your responsibility isn't to make Christians. <laughs> it's not to get people uh, to, to like sign on and say a prayer. I believe your responsibility, according to Scripture, is to carry the gospel in such a way to represent Christ well, to present his message and deliver it to people in need. Can I tell you, there is nothing you can do to make somebody say yes to Jesus. The way that you live your life, the way that you present his message, and your willingness to say yes has a lot to do with their response. I believe that. But inevitably, the Holy Spirit moves and works through you in order to get people to say yes. For me, that was the most freeing revelation I had because I felt like, God, I'm striking out as I'm telling people about Jesus. Like, you know, I'm just like, God, I don't know what's missing here. Like, I I feel like, uh, you know, I'm doing my best to present the gospel. I'm doing my best to live in such a way to try and and make you um, and set you in the right light to get people to say yes to you. But for whatever reason, I keep striking out. Can I tell you, people will reject the message of the gospel. I can say that because they rejected it from the only perfect messenger there was, Jesus himself. And so my, my heart this morning is to look at one of these encounters that someone had with Jesus where they recognized and saw him as who he was supposed to be seen as and still rejected Jesus. I say that because it's... Pastor Nate, that seems like a weird place to start. Shouldn't you, like when you're, we're talking about encountered, shouldn't you like start with the positive, right? Like, shouldn't we like have a happy message this morning? Um, no. I'm going to ask if somebody could turn on these lights because I can't read my Bible. And so typically we turn the lights on, but I just can't see what I'm reading. Thank you. <laughs> and so to kick off our year, as we have expectations of encounter with Jesus, I thought it would be appropriate to begin, to begin studying some of Christ's meetings with people in the Gospels. And so we're going to take, oh, it's turned off on the stage. Do, 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 do. This is our intermission. We'll get back on track. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, essentially, what I want to do, friends, over the next couple of weeks, and uh, we kind of even used it as a model for prayer on during the week of prayer, is to look at different examples of Scripture of how Jesus encountered people and their responses to said encounter, and what we can learn from those encounters to better model the life that Jesus intends for us to live and bring glory to his name. And so with that, we're going to start in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read in verse 18 um, of chapter 18, and uh, we'll come back and talk about it in just a second. So once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, 
Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your mother and father. The man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. (laughs) Liar. Um, When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when this man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. Right off the get-go, I want to alleviate, I want to let you take a fresh breath. In no means am I going to tell you that you have to give all of your money away in order to be saved. So everybody, everybody, you can breathe now. Okay, Good. What this command is, and I I, want to be very specific here. Jesus is giving an instructional command to an individual here. This is by no means to be mass applied to everybody. This was a command individually here. And if I need you to get this, because if not, you can have a twisted view of what we're talking about today. The issue here was not whether or not he would give all of his money away to the poor. That's not what we're talking about. The issue here is simple obedience. And so as we walk through this story, I need you to place yourself in the position of the rich young ruler and ask yourself, are you willing to be obedient to what God asks of you? Can I tell you, if there is a cost that is too high in following Jesus, it will find you out. This, all doesn't, this doesn't have anything to do, reflect on how much money you have today. It entirely hinges upon how worthy is Jesus in your life. And so as we walk through this story, I, I want you to kind of get your mind out of the place. Because I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. And if any of you guys in here are like extremely abundantly wealthy and like you want to talk later, we can do that. Um, <laughs> just being, just being honest. But just maybe I'm wrong and bad at reading people. I don't have the sense that any of us are just like sitting on mounds of wealth and like we're really struggling because we have so much money right now. Um, where the heart issue that I believe that Jesus is getting at here points to a culture as a whole that I want to kind of read through this lens, apply it to where we are in this cultural moment, and see what truth Jesus has to speak into our lives today, okay? Because none of us are really rich young rulers, right? Right? You're not, okay, there's more to the story than that. You see, I believe this story is a poignant picture of much of our culture today. You see, we come to Jesus much like this guy, and we come based on our own morality, And we treat him merely as a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? You see, the rich young ruler simply wanted to know what he could do to get into heaven. You see, he had a pretty sweet setup, right? In the the temporal, like he, he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, things were going good. He was trying to get his ducks in a row for what was next, like he was an active planner. So he comes to Jesus and says, well, what must I do to be saved. What must I do? Uh, what must I do to get into heaven is essentially the question that he's asking. 
But you see, I think he was missing out on it because he was looking at his life through the lens of what he had, (laughs) not the lens of what he was missing, which was a relationship with Jesus. See, he was looking as heaven as a place to get to, not a relationship with Jesus as something to be had here and now. Can I tell you, John 10.10 tells us that he came for us to have life and life abundantly. I love the way that the New Living Translation puts it. He says that he came for us to have a rich and a satisfying life, friends. When he's asking about eternal life here, this young man has his eyes set on eternity in the future, but he doesn't understand that there is something to be had here and now. And I think this is a grave problem for the majority of people today. They look at faith in Jesus. They look as, at, at church. They look at religion as something as kind of like an insurance plan for when things go south and we bite the bucket, right? They look at it as something like, I want to make sure after I've had my sp- Uh, I've had my good time here on earth after I've kind of done my thing I've lived my life I've raised my family and I'm getting older like when I die I just want to make sure like I've crossed all my t's and I've dotted all my i's and I'm gonna make it and I'm gonna be good and, and get into heaven when I die can I tell you that is not what the gospel is about That is not what the message of Jesus is about. He came so that right now, here today, that you can live a rich and a satisfying life found rooted only in him. And so as Jesus is saying this, right, as Jesus is responding uh, to this um, young ruler, uh, we, we kind of see some really crazy things come out. I'm excited to talk about it. The question, though, first that he's asking, what must I do to get to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's the question many people are asking. It's what a lot of religions are asking even, right? And they may not phrase it the same, but it's how do I reach nirvana if you're a Buddhist, right? Or how do I, how do I get to heaven? How do I do these things? How do I, how do I become a better person? All of these things, uh, these answers, how do I inherit eternal life? is the question that many are asking. And I believe if we were to dumb it down, it's in reality just asking, how much of Jesus do I need to have in my life for me and God to be on okay terms enough to when I die, I get into heaven? Right? I mean, I I really think that's the majority of what people want. They want to know just, like, how much of Jesus do I need in my life to be like, okay to, like, get the green light when I die. <laughs> Can I tell you, friends, that's a disastrous mistake to make. You see, we, we treat Jesus almost like a condiment, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, man, this taco's really good. Like, my life's really good. But you know what would make it better? Like, some nice guacamole or something. I hate guacamole, so I don't know why I use that as, a, as an example. I love Jesus. I would never equate him with, like, that disgusting, green, mushy stuff. But <laughs> but that's really, like, what, that's the way that the majority of our culture treats Jesus, right? We're looking for Jesus as an addition to our life rather than the one that we radically mold our lives around. Because we have it pretty much figured out, right? You know, we, we've got things, we've got money in the bank, we have comforts, and you might say, you know what, I don't have like a ton of money. Compared to the majority of the world, we're all pretty well off, right? I mean, we have clean drinking water. That immediately sets us above like the majority of the world. 
and we feel like, you know what, I don't really need Jesus. And I think that this was the problem that this young man had, right? We look at this central character in the story. We look at this rich young ruler. We know that he's rich. We know that he's young. And we know that he's a religious leader. And if you're like reading just Luke chapter 18, like how did you get out of that? You have to cross-reference it with the story that's almost immediately identical found in Matthew chapter 19 where we get a little uh, information with the fact that he was a young ruler. He was young. So to me, he had three things going for him, right? He had his money. He was rich, he was young, so he had his vitality, he had his health, and he also had a religious foundation. He had a, he had a religion that he found himself, and his self-assessment deemed him to be a pretty good person, right? And so we, we see this in him, and I believe that if that's not a, like a pretty like vivid picture of the majority of the church at large, the majority of the culture at large in America today. You know, most of us are fairly healthy. Most of us have, uh, most of us have uh, plenty of money and we're well off. And what this screams to me is a man that doesn't really have a need for Jesus because his life's pretty comfortable, right? We see a picture of a person who is comfortable in what they have. And so the appeal of like, what do you mean? Like, like my life, I, I guess it could get a little better, but... Like, I don't really need it to. It's pretty good. <laughs> and I think a lot of people fall into this boat. They fall into this category where they just, they, they look at Jesus and they're like, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I better, like, sign up for that box, you know? So when I'm done here doing this and doing what I've made for myself, um, things are going to be good on the other side. And I see that here in this young man because he's got it all, Right? And it's that question, it's that, it's, that, it's that mentality that Jesus is just simply an addition to what we've already got going on rather than the one that we surrender everything to and we mold our lives around this man. You see, I believe this. Jesus isn't just concerned about getting, into, getting you into heaven. That's not his main priority. I believe he wants your heart here and now as well. Eternity is a big deal. I'm not trying to downplay that. Like, obviously, Jesus wants you with him in heaven. Like, we, we can read that. We see that through Scripture. That's the reason why he came and died. But it's not just so that you can be with him when, when you die. <laughs> like, you're not just, like, a prescribed to suffer for, like, 70 years. That's why you don't just say a prayer, and then you suffer, and you suffer, and you suffer, and then eventually you get to heaven. Like, that's not what Jesus promises in Scripture. Like, that's... That's not the message that he has. That doesn't mean there's not hardship. That doesn't mean that it's like a cakewalk and it's super easy either. But the promise is that you would have life and life abundantly. That it would be rich and that it would be satisfying here and now. He wants relationship with you today. Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 3. These are the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea. 
And I think it, I think if there was like ever a fitting message for the church today in our culture, this is like spot on the money. And so, so listen to this. This is the words of Jesus. He says this, beginning in verse 15, I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to go and buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire, that you will be rich and also buy white garments for me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Whoa. (laughs) Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Friends, you may not know this, but this is where we got the name for our church from. (laughs) Open Door Church. If you you actually, if you you look like on the little thing, as you walk in the, the door here with our logo on it, that's the verse that we have here. I don't know if you, if you understand this, but Jesus is saying here, I stand at the door and knock. How many of you guys have heard this verse, this passage of scripture, used in like the way to lead somebody to Jesus? Like you've heard it used in like evangelism or something like that. that, that that's where I've almost always heard this like uh, this passage of scripture referred to. But the crazy thing about this, these are the words of Jesus, and he's speaking to his church. He's not speaking to a lost sinner here. He's speaking to his bride, to his body. He's speaking to you and me. And he's saying, look, I'm on the outside. Let me in. That's startling, friends. It's a church that's marked by indifference. It's a church that's marked by complacency. It's a church that is lukewarm, that's content and comfortable with the life that they're living and what they have. They're living with no urgency, with the fact that Jesus is actually coming back and that the world is on its way to destruction. And Jesus in his mercy and his kindness has been persistently knocking, saying, let me in. Let me share a meal with you as a friend. Let me show you that you are actually poor, that you are actually naked, that you are actually blind. That the comfort that you currently experience is a a veiled one. It's a false one. It actually has no lasting satisfaction that what you're living in and the lie that you're comfortable needs to be removed. Hmm. You see, I wrote this, that too many of us don't need Jesus. We're far too comfortable with the life that we've made for ourselves. We want to be okay, so we want to treat Jesus as like a little salt or pepper and, you know, add him to what we've already got going on when he actually wants to be the one that we radically mold our lives around. 
we go on and we read the story back in Luke 18. We look at this rich young ruler. <laughs> and he begins his question with this, with this interesting term. He calls Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus spits back and says, why do you call me good? Right? Because nobody's good but God. <laughs> and he digresses and goes on and he says, well, regardless of the question, here you go. But it's something interesting. I don't know if you guys know this, but, you know, uh, the word that they are using here when we're talking about good is not the same way that we use the word good here. Like, we use, like, we use the word good, like, like in selection of, like, um, if you're, like, getting coverage for your car, like a rental car. I was at a rental car place recently. They had like three different tiers of their insurance coverage, which I declined and I shouldn't have because then I got broken into and the window got busted out. But <laughs> in my mind, I was like, my credit card covers me. Turns out it didn't. Um, but they had like three tiers of coverage that you could choose. And there was like the good coverage, the better coverage, and the best coverage, right? And, th and then like I've seen like oil change places where you can get the good oil change, you can get the better oil change, or you could get the best oil change, right? You've seen car washes, that's a perfect one, right? Yeah, you can get the good car wash, which doesn't do anything. You could get the better car wash, which is $12 more expensive, but cleans the undercarriage because you know that's important. And then uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going with. You guys get what I'm saying though, right? That's not what we're describing Jesus as here. The word good here, and it was actually a unique title. Um, it was very, very specific. It's actually used nowhere else in the Talmud, uh, which is uh, basically like the Jewish uh, religious and ceremonial law. So it was like all of Jewish life centered around the Talmud. And so nowhere in that, in, in that whole collection of law is anybody referred to as good because it was understood that if you were referring to someone as good, it was God himself. It was a title specifically reserved for God himself. Um, in fact, this is what one Bible commentator, he says, Jewish culture insisted on calling God alone good. And so it was very much taboo to call someone good rabbi or good master. That didn't happen. There was no record, there's no record of it in the entire Talmud. There's no record of it anywhere outside of the, this young ruler attributing it to Jesus. So when he's calling Jesus good teacher, there is an air of revelation about what he's saying. And that's why Jesus responds, you're, you know what you're saying, right? When you call me good teacher, you're calling me God. It's this self, it's this self, um, this is the self-claim that Jesus is making because he doesn't rebuke the guy for calling him good, right? He doesn't say, yo, hold up. You, that's only for God alone, and I'm just Jesus. Like he, does, he doesn't like put like an amendum on what he says. He says, you know what you're saying here? And the, the implication is the fact that, well, if Jesus is a good teacher in this sense, then he must be God. Because the word good that's used here implies sinlessness. That's crazy. It's important to understand and grasp that. Because as we, as we look at that, I believe it's, it's reminiscent of a culture today that is okay with calling God good, that's okay with recognizing Him as God, but it doesn't move beyond lip service. 
I believe that it's a place where Christians can sing songs, right? How great thou art and walk out the doors and live like they don't know him. (laughs) And I believe that that's important for us to grasp because it's got to move past a place where it's just something that's head knowledge. It moves past a place where it's something that we just repeat with our lips or something that that we just say half-heartedly. And it's something that we have divine revelation of his goodness. Because while he may have recognized that Jesus is different, that Jesus is good, he did not have an utter revelation of his worthiness. Because we would have seen a completely different reaction from him when Jesus gives him a command. Friends, it's not good enough just to believe in God. It's not good enough just to believe that he's good. You know, the demons even do that and they shudder at the fact. Hmm. it's not enough just to have lip service with him it's not enough just to to ask the question God what can I do to get into heaven can I tell you that that Jesus has to move beyond something that we just add to our life he has to move beyond uh, beyond a person that we just describe as good or we just subscribe to the notion that we believe in him You see, Jesus didn't come as just Savior. Jesus didn't use the terminology that he's just the Savior of the world. He comes as both Savior and King. We often, we see him referred to as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, right? Um, All of us want to picture Jesus as like maybe the blonde-haired, like blue-eyed, like Anglo-Saxon kind of like uh, like super like nice looking dude holding the little lamb. I say this because when I first became the pastor here, there was this picture downstairs of the church that had like this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus holding this little lamb, and it was a beautiful picture. And I'm like, man, I thought he was from the Middle East or something like that, right? (laughs) We want to picture him as this gentle, uh, loving guy, and he is. But he's more than that. He's also the returning king who's going to be riding a white horse whose name is Faithful and True. He's going to have a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, and he's coming back to judge and make war. Like, he is a ferocious king as well. You know what it says in the book of Revelation, where it talks about the, the wine press of God's wrath being tread? And, and that blood is going to come out up to the bridles of the horse <laughs> for like 600 miles or something crazy like that? that my math might be wrong, but it's insane. <laughs> like, that's, I'm, that's not just to be graphic. That's not just to be like, whoa, that's intense. Like... We should be arrested by the notion that God is both this gentle, loving, welcoming father and king. But he's also meaning business as well. You see, we don't get just half of him. We we don't get to pick and choose. We don't get get to picture, we don't get to pick the, the part of Jesus that says, yes, save me for my sins. Sign me up for that without embracing him as Lord and master over our life as well. He does not present that offer to you. He doesn't say, you know what, say this prayer, make sure you check the box, and then go live however you want to live. 
That has been a common misconception that has been perpetuated through this age. It started when we were like, hey, let's just teach somebody the ABCs of the gospel. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus and confess your sins, right? Confess that he's Lord, and man, you're good, you're you're saved, your salvation's never going anywhere. Just do whatever the heck you want for the rest of your life, and at the end of the day, man, you're good. God can't turn his back on that promise. Friends, that's not how this works. We don't get that option. Either he is Savior and Lord to the full, or he means nothing to you, and he's worthless to you, like he was to this man. See, he came to Jesus based on his own morality. Right? (laughs) What must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus responds to his question with, well, you know the commandments. Keep them, right? (laughs) What does does Jesus say here? (laughs) He says, But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. And like this man replies, he kind of cuts Jesus off here. He says, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. He wants to know what he can do to get right with God. Can I give you a little bit of spoiler, uh, like a spoiler alert here? There's nothing that he can do to get right with God. And friends, I want you to know here, there's nothing that you can do to atone for your mistakes. There's nothing that you can do to kind of mask your ledger and somehow get your good to outweigh your bad so Jesus will say, welcome into my kingdom on that day. In fact, it was, it's, sin is such a problem that God saw it and said, you can't do anything about your situation, but I can, and steps into the picture. And that's where Jesus embraces Calvary and he dies for you and me because he so wants you to be with him where he is. Hmm. So he asks this question, Jesus responds with, you know the commandments, keep them. You know, I I think he probably kept those commandments that Jesus said. I mean this. I I know I coughed and said liar a minute ago. (laughs) I don't know. But I think he kept the commandments in the eyes of man, in in kind of the religious sect and the system that he was in. I think it's very probable that, you know what, he didn't kill anybody. (laughs) It's very probable that he didn't cheat on his spouse, right? It's very probable, maybe, that he didn't lie to anybody. That one's probably a stretch, but maybe he did it. He probably honored his mother and his father according to Jewish ceremonial and ritual law, right? He probably did this. I I need you to take note because we're going to come back to it. Notice how every single one of these commands that Jesus mentions here is in regard to, to man's relationship with man. It's not in regard to the, the, what we would consider the first table of the law, which are the, the commandments that relate man back to God. <laughs> but it's, it, it paints it into the picture of how he's relating to man <laughs> and his righteousness in terms of the way that man would see it and deem it. I think it's entirely impossible for him to have upheld 
the spirit of the law, like we see Jesus reveal in the Beatitudes, right, where um, you may not have committed adultery as in you didn't sleep with another woman, but if you've lusted after her in your heart, you've already done it. Or maybe you didn't commit murder, but you probably hated a brother one, one time or two. And, uh, oh man, I'm not going down that road right now. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3, it says this. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Paul's saying here that if anyone could have confidence in like not breaking the commandments, it's me. But I can't because I can't. <laughs> He goes on, he says, Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. He goes all the way back to when he was eight days old. He says, you know what? I started early, friends. Man, I got a clean plate, clean track record. He goes on, he says, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I don't think Paul was exaggerating here when he's saying, I obeyed the law without fault. <laughs> he's not talking about the spirit of the law. He's talking about the, the ceremonial and religious law uh, of the commandments. He says, I obeyed it without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. Thank you, Jesus. Because these two studs probably had like a good track record. I look at my track record, it is I have a failing, flunking grade <laughs> when it comes to upholding the law. <laughs> you guys tracking with me for a second? He comes based on his own morality. He says, you know what, Jesus, I've done all these things for my youth. And Paul would tell us that, well, that's great, but it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I mean, really, it's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. <laughs> And Jesus, I believe, sees something in this young man. You know, instead of challenging the man's fulfillment to the law, which I, I believe Jesus had every right to do, he could have said, well, no, wait, what about this? What about when you thought about her? Because he knew, right? He could have called this guy out, demolished him, brought him down to death, and saying, Dude, you're not righteous. You haven't fulfilled the law. You are in need of a savior. He could have done that, right? Jesus would have had every right to. He'd compute. Nobody would have called Jesus out and said, Jesus, that was a little like that was a little harsh. Rather, Jesus points him to what I believe is uh, the what Jesus himself even calls like the first and the greatest commandment, right? I believe that he he reflects back on Deuteronomy 6:5, where he says, um, 
that uh, we are to put God first, essentially, right? To fulfill the law, um, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. It points it back to what we would call the first table of the law, right? (laughs) That you should have no other gods before me. Friends, if there's one thing, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the Bible in general, there's one thing God is very passionate about. And it's that he has the first and only place in your life. There's not room for two masters. There's not room for a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the world, a little bit of what I like, a little bit of what God likes. I mean, Jesus says it himself, right? A divided kingdom cannot stand. Jesus isn't interested in sharing the real estate of your heart with anything else. So Jesus responds and says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I believe this is a very simple principle of a man that was too comfortable to see the worth and value of Jesus. And my prayer for you and me, my prayer for this church, my prayer for our culture, is that there would be nothing that would sit upon the throne of our heart that would have a higher place than Jesus. Because while I'm not going to tell you to give all your money to the church or to the poor, Jesus might. What do you do in that moment? You sing that meatloaf song, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Too many of us have that reservation when it comes to the Lord. God, I'll do anything for you. I'll go to the ends of the earth. I'll preach the gospel to unknown people. I'll give all my money in the offering plate, but just don't touch that relationship, God. Just don't ask me to give that person up. Just don't ask me to give that aspect of my life up. You know what my big thing was when I first gave my life to the Lord? And you're going to laugh, and you're going to be like, that was a big deal. It was music for me. (laughs) The biggest, like, stronghold that the enemy had in my life was music. (laughs) <laughs> and music's not bad. Notice here, like, what, what God might seek from you and ask you to surrender to him is not in and of itself sinful, right? This guy having money wasn't sinful. Hear me, hear me on that. Me liking music, some of it was. I'll, gi- I'll give the Lord that. Not all of it was. I, when I gave my life to the Lord, I, I could not turn on the radio anymore. Like, I could not listen to the things that I listened to before because I knew what it did in my heart. And the Lord asked me to give that up when I followed him. And when the Lord invites you to follow him, you should be prepared to give up your life because my life was enveloped in music. The message of the gospel is not that you would add him to what's already going on. It's that you would lay down your life that you might actually find it. And friends, can I tell you, I've never looked back. I've never regretted giving what I thought was a pretty good 
thing that I had going at the time, giving it and surrendering it to the Lord and picking up what he had for me. Because he says here, lay up treasure in heaven. If you continue to read the story, <laughs> he goes on talking about how, how sad it is and how hard it is for the rich to get saved. It's harder than going through a camel going through the eye of the needle. Jesus is like, I don't know if he's like trying to be humorous here. Some people say that, you know, he's like uh, trying to use hyperbole. Some people say he's like referring to a gate and a wall. Whatever it is, it's difficult and it's impossible to do. Because he goes on to say, well, then the disciples say, well, then who could ever be saved? He says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. <laughs> oh, man. But I love this. I love the promise that comes next. Because his disciples say, well, Jesus, we left our homes to follow you. Like, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus responds with this. Oh, man, just read it. I wasn't going to preach on this, but who cares? Um, <laughs> He goes, and so Peter says in verse 28, we left our homes to follow you. And Jesus replies, he says, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life. In this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Can I tell you, there is nothing that you can relinquish and give to God in this life that he will not repay you many times over with. That doesn't mean if you give all your wealth away that something like if you gave him a million dollars, then the next day like he's going to give you $10 million. That's not what we're talking about here. Don't get me wrong. But if God is asking you to give something up, what he has in exchange for you is far superior than what you're letting go of. When I let go of the plans and the purposes that I had decided that I was going to pursue with my life and began to say yes and embrace what God had for me, I could not have dreamed and imagined that I would be where I am today. You're looking at a kid that was so stinking scared of talking to a girl. Like, <laughs> I'm just being honest. Like, there was no hope for me at all. Like, ever. They're just, it was bad. You know, I didn't have a family growing up. I came from a real broken home, just bound by drug addiction and all kinds of nonsense. I never in the world envisioned that God would give me a family like he's given me. Oh, come on. Like by every stretch of the imagination, I should be a statistic somewhere, addicted to drugs, strung out, and just completely broken. But I said yes to Jesus. <laughs> and he asked me to give some junk up, <laughs> you know, like. But can I tell you, it was worth it. I can tell you that anybody that has ever sacrificed anything, I'm not talking about giving up something that you're not supposed to have. Like, I, we're not talking about like, oh man, you need to give up your like crack cocaine addiction, like addiction to Jesus here. Like, that's already a given. Please, like, hear me. <laughs> that wasn't clear, let's talk. <laughs> But what he's talking about here is sacrificially laying down your identity, laying down your comfort, laying down what makes you you, <laughs> and embracing what he has for you. Is he worthy? Is he worthy or is he not? 
Is there something that you're left holding on to that God has asked you to lay down and come follow him? Or will you turn away from that request saddened by the fact that you have a lot to give up? I believe he asks a lot of people to give up a lot of stuff that never gets touched, that never gets relinquished. Believe it or not, I believe he asks people with money to give it all away more often than we would like to preach it, more, like, more often than we'd like to say it. I believe God still does that. You know, I think of like Francis of Assisi. Gave it all to say yes to Jesus. We play games with God, friends. Especially within church. I'm guilty of it too. I've done it. I've been in services. I've been in, I've sung the songs, Lord, I surrender all, right? (laughs) You can have it all. When in reality, I know there's like, God, you can have everything, but just don't deal with that part of me. I'm not ready for that yet. Don't ask me to give that up. Don't ask me to make that change. Don't ask me to go there. Don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to share that message with that person because I'm not ready. I can't do that. Anybody argue with God like that? Stop. It's that easy, right? No, it's not. (laughs) I believe we need the Holy Spirit to give us greater revelation of the worthiness of Jesus. I want Jesus to have such a high place in my life that there is no way in heaven or hell that I'm going to choose something different than what he wants for me. I want him to have it. I need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.